0: Tonight we're talking about how to read scripture correctly and give you guys some tips and tricks in order to read scripture the right way. Yes, there is a right and a wrong way to read scripture. There is definitely a right and a wrong way to read scripture. And so we're going to kind of touch on some basics and we're going to hit the ground running. I don't want to keep you guys all night and so I want to be as effective with you guys time as possible. And so if you do need to go back again, this will be, make sure it's actually recording. I forgot to hit record one week. Um, uh, and so you can go back and re-listen to it. Um, and so, okay. So for tonight, I want to get a little bit practical first before we get into more of the descriptions and definitions and stuff like that. So practically what I do, and this is kind of an approach I've taken and a lot of uh, Chi Alpha directors, a lot of my peers teach the same thing. When you're reading your Bible and you're spending time with God and you're wanting to learn from Scripture, we call it the SOAP method. It's a pretty popular terminology. If you Google SOAP Bible, there'll be 5,000 different references that'll pop up and it'll teach basically this exact same thing because a lot of people teach this exact same thing in order how to read Scripture. Go ahead and go to SOAP. SOAP is S, stands for Scripture. That's basically you're just taking a minute, reading your Bible, taking the time to actually read what the Bible says, slow down, meditate, actually like take a second and read it. Because the problem is a lot of us get into this habit as Christians. The longer we're Christians, the worse we're at this. We start getting to the point where we just read the Bible to read it and get it done for the day. And we don't actually take the time to like read what it says. So soap kind of helps you slow down a little bit because it forces you to actually have some reading comprehension while you're reading the Bible. Because the next one is O, which is observation. So what does the scripture mean? And we're going to use hermeneutics and we're going to talk about hermeneutics. If that's a word you don't know, don't worry. We're going to talk about that. But what is the audience? Who's the audience? Is a repetition of words. What's the important parts of this? What is standing out to me that I just read? Then the next one is application. What does this scripture mean for me? What is God saying to me today through this scripture? How do I apply it to myself? And are there any changes that I need to make in my own life? And then P is prayer. Pray into that scripture. Ask God to show you what it says. Um, Ask God what it means for your life. Is there anything that you need to confess? Any sins that are coming to light because of the scripture you just read? And just pray that he would kind of make that scripture just kind of solid in your day so that it would kind of come back to your mind throughout the rest of the day. Soap is, it's just an easy way to do it. And if this is something that you're like, hey, you know what? I kind of suck at reading the Bible and applying it to my life. If you go on Amazon and look for soap journals, there's a thousand different soap journals that literally each page just says soap. And then you get to fill out scripture, fill out your observation, fill out your uh, application, and then fill out your prayer. And so it's, it's literally the easiest way in the world to read your Bible. And so, like I said, take pictures, um, but for now, I want you to put down your phone, turn it over, don't access it, close your Bibles, we're going to do a little bit of practice before we get going, okay? So everybody close your eyes, close your eyes, everybody close your eyes. Nobody say anything, no words, this isn't asking a question, no nudging your neighbor, I want you to sit and think about this for a second. I want you to meditate on it. We're going to give you 30 seconds to meditate on this verse. And I want you to answer, what does this verse mean to you? What does it mean to you personally? What does it mean um, in accordance to Scripture? What does it mean to you, okay? The verse is, and he said, all this I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. What does this verse mean to you? And he said, All this I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Keep your eyes closed if you can. Just thinking about it. It's a pretty awesome verse, right? It's one of my favorite verses. This verse can mean a lot of things. It could mean... The whole world is ours if we worship God. It can mean salvation is ours if we worship God. It could also mean our dreams can be ours if I worship God. Jordan, you want to go to the next slide? You guys can open your eyes. And he said, all this I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. The reason why this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible is because for a totally different reason than you might be thinking, this is a pure definition of context. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Context is the process of taking a piece of scripture and looking at the paragraph around it, the chapter around it, the book around it, and the Bible around it, and figuring out what the the bigger idea of it says. In context, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So we can sit there and we can meditate on a a verse. It sounds great. You can get a tattoo of it. But if it doesn't say what the scripture around it is indicating that it is saying then you are taking a piece of scripture out of context. That's what taking scripture out of context is. That's why this is one of my favorite verses. It's kind of twisted that one of my favorite verses is a verse out of context. But it is such an awesome, op- or it's a, such an awesome verse that shows the, the importance of context. Because if you made that your favorite verse, oh, I can have the whole world if I would just fall down and worship him. Get a tattoo of it. Make it your life motto. And then you realize Satan is the one who said it to Jesus. It changes the meaning quite a bit. And so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. We're going to be talking about how to read the Bible correctly and how to look at Scripture within context and how to do that practically, quickly, and effectively because there is quite the lengthy process as to how to look at Scripture properly. You can go ahead and go to the next screen. This is another take your phone out, take a picture, These are some definitions. These are bigger words. Words you might not have ever heard before. Context. The word context comes from the Latin contextus or contexter, meaning to weave together. Therefore, words, phrases, sentences, paragraphs, larger works such as chapters and books need to be as much a part of the fabric as everything else. And so when we're reading the Bible, when you take a, a verse you have to look at the context within what is it talking about in the bigger paragraph, in the bigger page, in the bigger book, in the bigger scheme of the entire Bible. So the second thing, or the second definition is exegesis. And you'll hear some of these words tonight. Exegesis is the critical exploration or interpretation of Scripture. Exegesis is what you want to do. When you read the Bible, you want to exegete. You want to take Scripture, and you want to learn what Scripture says and apply it to your life. However, I have found that as being a college pastor for 10 years now, um, nine years now, I mean, it's been a while, that a lot of our college kids, when they come into Chi Alpha, when they come into Shatter State, most of them actually perform eisegesis. And eisegesis is the interpretation of Scripture by reading it into it your own ideas. So eisegesis is basically taking your bias and then reading Scripture and applying your bias to the Word in order to get something out of it. We don't want to eisegete. We don't want to bring our own bias into what we're reading because that's how we get things out of context. That's how we warp scripture to um, say things that it doesn't say. And that's how we can cause a lot. You can cause a lot of damage with eisegesis and over the decades and over the generations and over the thousands of years of, of Christians, there's been a lot of isogesis that has caused a lot of problems and a lot of wars even to that point. And so we don't want to eisegete. We want to exegete. We need to be very careful that we perform exegesis and not eisegesis when we, when we approach Scripture. And the last, last definition is hermeneutics. And that is the theory and practice of interpretation, where interpretation involves an understanding that can be justified. Hermeneutics is basically, uh, in my, my Tanner's version, it's kind of the rule book. So if exegesis is the game of football, then hermeneutics is the rule book. Isogesis is the stay-at-home couch quarterback who thinks they can do it better than the people on the field. That's basically kind of the rough Tanner version of it. And so, tonight what we're going to do and what we're going to kind of get into, and we're going to go pretty quick from here on out. I'm trying to give you the one-on-one of what hermeneutics teaches. So, hermeneutics is that textbook. There's a textbook back there. It's not hermeneutics. But, Matt, you want to grab that textbook and hold it up. That's a different textbook, but when I took my college course on hermeneutics, it was a textbook bigger than that that just taught what hermeneutics is. So clearly, I cannot teach you everything that hermeneutics is tonight. And to be frank, most of you guys don't need to have that depth of an understanding of hermeneutics. And so, um, But there is a, a almost scientific method of how to perform hermeneutics so that we can exegete properly. And so it's kind of like a blueprint of like hey, if you do this, you're probably going to be exegeting perfectly if you do things within this right order. And so that's kind of the goal for tonight. So, um, in order to perform hermeneutics, we have to begin to understand what we're figuring out. What are we looking at within scripture? In order to exegete, how do we break things down? And so to kind of just get started and dig right in, we're going to kind of go through some of the general rules of hermeneutics. The first general rule is, of hermeneutics is that there is one single original interpretation. That one single original interpretation is more important than the thousands of years worth of interpretations that have come after it. The original interpretation is the most important because the original interpretation is from the person who wrote it. That interpretation is more important than the greatest theologian that has come a thousand years after, two thousand years after. It doesn't matter how good you are as a theologian. The author's interpretation, because they're the ones who heard from the Holy Spirit, they're the ones who had the divine revelation, their interpretation of it is the only correct one. Our job, and it's what hermeneutics is, is to try to get to the bottom of what that original interpretation was. So one original interpretation. The next rule of hermeneutics is application. So though there is one single solitary um, original interpretation, there can be multiple interp- uh, multiple applications. So one piece of scripture can have an intentional interpretation but it can apply to us today and it can also apply to people a thousand years ago and it could apply to people thousand years from now it can apply to people in africa it can apply to people in south america It can have multiple applications within different societies and different norms but one interpreter one original interpretation multiple applications but those applications have to stem from that original interpretation then we have to take, the third rule is the regard for genre. A passage might be a legal, narrative, polemic, poetry, wisdom, gospel, logical discourse, or prophetic literature. And I'll have all of this on another note here in a minute, or another slide here in a minute. But um, each have a specific guideline for their, their each individual proper interpretation. So each individual um, each individual genre is going to be interpreted differently. So that reason for that is if you get to a historical book, you know, for Genesis, Genesis 1 is talking about a historical, here's how this happened. And so we interpret that based off of a historical look. Okay, what does it say historically happened? We now can apply that. Okay, that's historical. However, a take go into the book of Revelation and we start looking at end time theology. It's going to be interpreted a little bit different because it's not always literal, exactly word for word what it says. And so we have to take regard for literary devices as well, which is poetry, simile, metaphor, and hyperbole. And the last rule of hermeneutics is harmony. No part of the Bible may be interpreted so that it can contradict, uh, so that it can contradict another part of the Bible. We as Christians, as we are reading scripture, we presuppose the inerrancy and the harmony of scripture as a necessary result of the perfect creator revealing himself to mankind. And so in order to interpret it correctly, we have to assume that it isn't going to contradict itself. And again, this is not a complete list, but these are kind of the basic 101 rules. So go ahead and go to the next slide. This is another, take a picture of. So this is how to exegete using hermeneutics. Now I know you guys didn't necessarily follow all of the last things that I said, and there's a reason why I didn't create a slide for that because I don't want you to get so caught up in the last part and the definitions of hermeneutics. Um, That's something if you want to, you can go back through and listen to, or you can Google the rules of hermeneutics. And you can come up with a lot more extensive of a list than I just shared with you guys. For the sake of time, I don't want to focus on that too much um, because I would like to get to this next part, which is the step-by-step how to exegete using the hermeneutical code, how to, the hermeneutical rules. So the first step is to um, uh, biblical interpretation is to understand what the author was trying to say to the people of his time originally. So we have to realize that the Bible was written thousands of years ago over a period of a lot of time. And each different, uh, even each different book of the Bible was written at different periods within the Jewish people's life or uh, society, the life of the society even. And so the different context of what they were writing in Job is going to be a different context that the writer was writing in the New Testament because the The location, the time, everything was different. Sometimes the the Jews were within exile, sometimes they weren't. And so you have to know what the author was writing to their people of that day and what they were trying to say. Step two is to understand the text context. So in order to understand a text context, you need to look at the paragraph around it, look at the page around it, look at the book around it, figure out what the whole book is trying to say. You know, for example, Philippians um, is written by Paul when he's in prison and he's trying to encourage the Philippian church. So the context of reading something when he says rejoice, rejoice, and in all circumstances rejoice, we now know the context. Okay, so we're supposed to rejoice and he's writing this from prison. And so the greater context of it is, okay, even if we're in prison, we need to be rejoicing. We need to be rejoicing whether we're in the good and the bad. And so knowing the context of the whole book can help us to understand even little scripture, even one little verse better and better because context is important. And so step three is understand the text background. Again, you're separated from the writers of the Bible 2,000 plus years at minimum, depending on which book you're looking at. And so it's important for you to understand the culture and the times that the author represented when he was writing it. So this can take some work initially. So as you guys begin to perform hermeneutics, as you guys begin to actually do this and read scripture the correct way, it can be difficult because you'll have to, And but here's the thing. <clears throat> the bad news is it can be tough early on. The good news is as you begin to learn the, the books of the Bible in the background, it becomes more familiar to you and you don't have to look it up as often. And the second thing is Google exists. Like it's really, it takes you 10 seconds to learn a book of a Bible's background. Who wrote it? When did they write it? What audience did they write it to? And you can, there's some resources on here, theopedia and biblehub.com, Wikipedia, even sometimes use Wikipedia as a last resort, but Bible hub has a ton of of commentaries and stuff that you can learn from. Um, If you do go to Wikipedia, actually go and look at their sources on the bottom. I know you guys are college students, you should probably have learned this by now, but if you go to Wikipedia and search for something, you can go find the source that they're quoting it from at the bottom of the page and look at the actual source and read through that. It's really not hard to find the the background and understand the background of a text. So, who's the author? Who's the author writing to? When was the text written? What was the historical situations at the time? Were they in slavery? Were they um, free? Were they uh, in exile? Had they just left left Egypt? What's going on? Um, Did they even have a society yet? Step four, understand the text genre. So the main six genres of scripture in order of amount. So the more likely the early ones are going to be the most likely ones. As it goes down the list, there's less and less of them. So historical narrative. The historical narrative genre records events in history in a literal and factual manner. So in example, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So that is considered a historical narrative. It's showing, it's just saying straight up, God created the heavens and the earth. This is what it is. End of sentence. We don't need to interpret it in any other way. God created the heavens and the earth. Um, Second most common is prophecy. Prophecy comes from the mouth and the pen of prophets. Prophets were uh, spokesmen for God. And so they delivered a pertinent message to the people of their times, and they sometimes told future events that were going to come to pass. So it was basically trying to warn them, hey, you are, as a society, stuck in sin. You guys need to repent. If you don't, God is saying His judgment is going to come upon you. That is a prophetical book. Third most common is epistolary. Epistles were letters written by individuals addressed to particular people and or churches. Epistles are especially found in the New Testament. Paul the Apostle wrote the majority of the epistles in the New Testament with John, Peter, James, and Jude also contributing. So epistles are basically like, um, like I said, Philippians 4. So John was writing specifically to a specific church. And so when we're looking at the context of it, we have to look through it through the lens of he was talking to a specific church that was going through specific problems And we then can interpret it and figure out, okay, what does that mean for me in a society or a church that doesn't necessarily struggle with those same problems? Or my church struggles with those same problems. I struggle with those same problems. So what does it mean to me? And so the next one, the Bible also consists of wisdom literature, which consists of around 6% of the total biblical text. That's found in Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. They provide general statements about life, in the way things normally are. Proverbs especially are not meant to discuss all of the possible variations that happen in life. They're short statements pertaining to life in general. The wisdom literature, and this is important, so listen in. If you're checking out, listen to this. The wisdom literally, uh, literature does not describe life as it exists 100% of the time. Does that make sense? So... Uh wisdom literature. So when you're enduring hardship and it's saying endure hardship a specific way, it's not saying that you are going to be enduring hardship 100% of the time. It's just saying while you are enduring hardship, behave this way. And when it addresses um, slaves, when it addresses um, business people, it's saying, this is how you need to act in this situation, but this doesn't necessarily encompass all of life. And then the last one is poetry genre. The Psalms hold the largest portion of poetry. The Psalm is a song. Thus, the Psalmists wrote their Psalms in a rhythmic pattern, and it is found in the Hebrew text. The Psalmists evoke emotions in their texts from their trials to their triumphs. They express their emotions and biblical poetry captures the emotional state. And so sometimes they're going to use words that are going to sound prettier together. Like when we listen or we we sing a worship song today, sometimes the, the theology can start to get a little bit warped because we want to use sloppy wet kiss and it starts to sound a little awkward, but it sounds good within the song. And so kind of the same way poetry kind of applies those same rules of Okay, so we got to try to capture the heart of what they're trying to say, not necessarily saying that God literally kisses us with a sloppy wet kiss. And then last, the Bible consists of apocalyptic genre. About 2% of the Bible is apocalyptic. I will say sometimes, college students, um, we can get over-obsessed with the apocalyptic. I feel like more people are obsessed with the apocalyptic than the bulk of everything else. And the apocalyptic only accounts for about 2% of the Bible. So that tells me there's 98% of information that is really important and 2% that is also important. But we need to not focus on the 2% and 98% of our energy. We need to focus 98% of our energy on 98% of the Bible. And 2% of our energy on 2% of the Bible. I say this from conviction because I obsessed over the apocalyptic for a long time. And so I studied the apocalyptic and I know it very well. And it pretty much has not served me as a pastor at all. And so I spent a lot of time learning something for no real good reason. But I'm glad I did because it is important that we still do it. So as I said, you still need to devote 2% of your attention, 2% of your energy to learning the 2% of the Bible. So you can't just disregard it as, oh, that's apocalyptic. I'm going to just throw it away. You still need to dedicate time and energy to learn about it. It is important. So... Uh, scripture, for instance, um, apocalyptic writings, they employ a great deal of symbolism and allegory to teach literal truths. For example, Revelations 5.6 says Jesus is identified as having seven horns and seven eyes. So does this mean that John really indicated in Revelation that heaven Jesus will have seven literal eyes and seven literal horns upon his head? No. No. And so the book of Revelation, Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Isaiah contain the majority of apocalyptic end-time writings. So these can be tricky to interpret correctly. And a lot of times you have to apply historical events and historical truths that have already happened to us, but hadn't happened to them a lot of times. Okay, so we're on step five. And then we really get the ball rolling last, but not least, you got to understand the text application. So now after you have understood step one through four, we then now can take the text and we can apply it to our lives in modern time and how it applies to me today. So only after we've understood the text original message, we've understood the text context, We've understood the text's background and we've understood the text genre. Can we then begin the process of applying it to us today? So what we're gonna do today is I'm going to number you guys off one and two, okay? So one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, one, two. One's over here, two's over there you were a one. one that was he was a okay. one you were a two yeah you're good you're a two and circle up because you guys are going to be communicating with each other okay so with any good teaching period i know you guys go to class every day learning and being taught is tough come to chi alpha and then be taught again in a monotone teaching style and so in order to learn better some people learn by just hearing some people learn better through reading and some people learn better through application and so what we're going to do is today you guys are going to exegete using hermeneutics a piece of the bible and we're going to give you guys five five ten minutes Basically, how long it takes you guys to actually come up with the proper interpretations. And then you're going to explain to the other group what you came up with. Does that make sense? Okay. So, the first group, you guys, are going to be doing Philippians 1, 3 through 5. Philippians 1, 3 through 5. You guys kind of got it off easy because I already explained a little bit about the background of Philippians. So if you get that wrong, you guys are kicked out of the ministry. Just kidding. You're not. I love you all. Please come back. (laughs) Um, You guys have Acts 10, 11 through 14. Acts 10, 11 through 14. And staff, try not to help all of the time. Try to let students... (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, you guys are doing three, four, and five, so three, yeah. So the first suggestion, I suggest reading it to each other, like reading it as a group, and then going step by step... So don't try to figure out what the application is after you've read it, go step by step. That's the whole point of hermeneutics. That's the whole point of the hermeneutics code is you want to start at step one. So after you've read it, try to figure out what the original author was saying. Then you want to understand the text context. So start looking up who's the author. What was the context of the book as he was writing? The book is the whole, then you want to go through step three, understand the background. When, where, who is it written to? Is there cultural differences between them and us? Hint, yes, there is. Resources, you can use these resources in order to do that. And then step four, figure out the text genre. Is it historical? Is it allegorical? Is it poetry? And then you can answer step five. So when you step up, stand up to present and you guys decide you wanna share with each other, I'm gonna ask for an answer for each one of these, so I suggest writing stuff down. Good? Alright, since group one was finished first, you guys can go first. <laughs>
1: okay. Okay, so good morning. Good evening. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my name is Amandola and I'm representing group one. So our um, reading was Philippians One, chapter three to five. I'm gonna read it really quickly. So it says I thank my God for you every time I think of you, and every time I pray for you all, I feel the joy because of the way in which you have helped me in the work of the gospel from the very first day until now. Okay, so the first question is, the first step is understanding the text message. The text message. So, Paul is thanking people. Now, you might wonder, why is he thinking the Philippians? And um, if you have read some of the letters of Paul to so-so-so and so, he always seems to be thinking people uh, saying something of the sort. Well, in this particular book, he's thinking of the Philippians because he was in prison. And while he was in prison, he was abandoned by everybody. And nobody helped him, nobody cared about him, except there people
2: in Philippi, right? Yeah. <laughs> Except people in Philippi. So they sent him
1: some uh, financial help and through the help of the men that went above and beyond to help him. Those are the words of one of our members. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so he went, uh, so he basically thanking them because they are the only church that stood by him during that very trying time in his life. So who are the Philippi Counts? There are people <laughs> who live in Philippi.
2: That's all we got. <laughs> so
1: it's in, it's in Northeast Greece. It's in Northeast Greece. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> the text general. So it's an episode. Yeah. And uh, understanding the text application. Basically, we came to the conclusion that you must be supportive of your deacons and elders in the church yeah, the deacons and elders and people who have been called specifically to s spread I mean that we need to follow the example of the Philippines and so yes, especially when they're fruit of they are growing through tough time. we must not have another Thank you for listening
0: to the next <laughs> very good very good. Tough act to follow. All right, who is g- speaking for group two? Cool. Just, uh,
3: give you guys a per- permission to interrupt We're waxing very eloquent tonight, <laughs> sir. Uh, okay, so the text message um, I, mean, well, I guess we were a little bit confused about how one and two are different. I guess we can talk a bit about mm-hmm. that later, but in particular, we know that it was written by Luke. Uh, to a man named Theophilus, uh, but it's largely a historical account. And right here he's talking about Peter um, and how he's in the city of John. Um, I'm going to just go ahead and read our selection. Uh, the, not Starting from 9, just to back up a little bit more. Um, the next day, as they went on their journey and were near the city, Peter went up on the housetop praying about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. And saw heaven open, and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. And in it were all kinds of four footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And that was our selection. Uh, to understand the verse's context, we have to remember that this is a historical book, um, but in its written to create a record of all the events um, of the church and its expansion. Um, and here it is about Peter um, and this, this vision he's seeing. Let's uh, kind of get into the text and the background, I guess we've kind of discussed that already. It's very much about the early church age about the apostles in the days after the ascension. Um, understanding the, the culture, um, knowing that uh, Caesarea and Jaffa, these are cities that are not uh, in Israel proper, to my understanding. So it's in a place where Peter is very very much a fish out of water. And by taking that gospel out of Jerusalem, he's taking it into unfamiliar territory. And we have to also recognize with dining conventions that, as an Israelite, he's expected and has been grown up his whole life under. So here he sees this sheep descending, the voice from heaven, right Peter, kill and eat. These are things he is, from this high, he is known not to touch. And we have to also remember that Peter, this is a, Peter, was one of the most zealous, one of the, always the first to talk, second to think, disciples. He was ride or die with Jesus. And he was the, just absolutely zealous, wanted everyone to know it. So it's not surprising that he's, he's saying this with such fervor. Um, and that's sort of the, the end of that. I mean, we're not not reading any further, This is obviously a problem. You gotta read the whole thing. You gotta read the whole thing. Um, as far as genre, we know it's a historical narrative. Uh, we know, partially because of the author. Uh, this is Luke, he's one of the epistles. He's a physician. Very uh, fastidious. Very detail-oriented. Um, as far as the application, we know that we can take it... See, we, we, uh, we weren't as fast. We were a little all over the place. You're good. But it's uh, kind of important to...
1: We
3: really sent
1: a longer application. I think we kind of talked about like how, like, there was a difference between the Jewish culture and the Gentile culture, and in that chapter, it was talking about like this other person who starts to have visions, um, but he's a Roman soldier, and so, like, the conflict that is starting to happen that we kind of see, um. In just culture wise, but just how God is like trying to bring them together through these visions and uh, ultimately bringing Cornelius and his household to salvation, then.
3: Um, yeah. And there's this breaching uh, of new territory Peter is not at all familiar with. So, yeah, that was Yeah. Right. Okay.
0: yeah. Um,. Yeah, it, was, it both represented that he could now he was no longer restricted in his dietary, but also it represented that um, the Gentiles could be uh, could the gospel could be shared with them. That's the context of exactly or the, the application. So to answer your question, step one and step two, the difference between the two, they're kind, they interweave very closely. But step one is what is this message specifically? The 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 few chapters, what is it saying? And then step two is to begin looking at the context and make sure it's still staying in line with the context. And if it's not, then you have to go back to step one and figure out what it is trying to say. Um, yeah, that was good, um, really good. Um, was there any other questions um, that popped up throughout your guys' process of walking through this and walking through basic hermeneutics? Any other questions that came up? I mean, one just yeah, go for it.
3: general is that well, anytime you're studying the Bible, you also kind of have to study history. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes you ha- only have like one name or first name. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and sometimes there's, you know, the same name is very common. Mm-hmm. Um, so wh- where's a good starting point for getting a a historical understanding of the people involved?
0: So typically what I do, um, there, there's uh, sometimes, it's one of those things where sometimes the people that are involved are very, very important. And sometimes... They're important, but not to the context of what the message is trying to say. But, um, again, those resources they are on their Theopedia and BibleHub.com, they have phenomenal resources within that that explained into more detail. Um, when a name pops up, they explain who is this person. Is this the same person from a different book in the Bible? Is it not? Um, the, the context of that is, is, uh, usually written within bible hub if you go to biblehub.com there's different things so i guess i didn't really explain what even bible hub is i use bible hub pretty extensively when it comes to like writing (coughs) sermons and stuff like that you can look at um, parallel verses so you can look at um, how different translations of the bible have interpreted the same script script you can look at the lexicon and actually look at what the original language was saying and then right next to that what the so if you're looking at the niv what the niv is telling you that it is saying and so you can go in and actually look at the original language it's not a translation of a translation i know that's a weird argument that a lot of people have that are anti-christian is because the translations are no that we have the original text you can go and look at it on bible hub you can actually go see what the original words were saying and what the definition of each word was and what the Strong's Concordance is of that. This is a free resource and you can actually look at all of that stuff. Um, then from there, you can look at a lot of the free commentaries. I think the commentaries, they come up with um, the 10 most popular commentaries are available instantly. If you go to the commentary of that scripture um, and you click on commentary, you can bring up the 10 most popular commentaries on it and the commentaries our more in-depth explanation of what's going on here, what's the background of it. Commentaries is where you find a lot of that information. And so um, the second resource is, if you don't own a physical study Bible, um, first thing, you need to have one. Because within a study Bible, a lot of that is answered as well. When a name pops up, a lot of times it explains who is this person and that kind of thing. Second thing, if you don't have one, um, you can come and talk to us and we can get you one. Um, Study Bibles are extremely important. Um, They do help you study stuff a little bit better because, honestly, study Bibles kind of do all of this work for you. If you have a study Bible, it's got the scripture up top and then it has pretty much the hermeneutics of what's going on underneath it. And it already answers it for you. So if you have any questions you're not sure what's going on, you can literally just look down, figure it out, read it, and then go back to your reading. I tend to not use the study Bible because it distracts me while I'm studying for myself. And I tend to just use the study Bible when I'm looking at um, my soap and I'm actually like trying to look at Scripture more in depth. But that was a lot longer of an answer to your question, but um, I realized I hadn't really explained what the resources that were up there were for. Go for it. How do I meditate? Like meditating on the Word? Uh, typically what I do is... So, um, what's your favorite Bible verse? Can you quote it? Do you have a verse memorized? Somebody have a verse. What's your favorite verse memorized?
2: My favorite verse that I have memorized is Isaiah forty
0: thirty one. Okay, what does it say? It
2: says, But you who wait on the Lord will... I get the first part, and I guess, I can't remember the first part real well. Uh, uh, something something that they that wait on the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles, they will run and not be weary, they will walk and not faint.
0: Okay. So when I meditate on the word, when I meditate on scripture, I read the scripture, and then I just ask, okay, Holy Spirit, what does this verse mean for me? And then I take a minute and I just don't think about like I don't think about school, I don't think about what's going on in my life. I just think about that verse for a minute. So I kind of go over it in my head a few times. Asking the Holy Spirit to talk to me about what it means. And then after I've gone over the verse a few times, just kind of reading it through a few times. I sit and I'm just silent. Now, there's a difference between silent vocally and silent within your head. How many of you guys know you can be silent vocally, but your brain is just going a million miles an hour? Try as hard as you can to be silent mentally for a good minute for a a verse. And just try to listen to what the Holy Spirit might tell you. And from there, you tend to get little nudges and urges from the Holy Spirit. Everybody hears from God differently. Um, but I kind of just seek that out. And if I get a little bit of a nudge of what it means and how I can apply it to my life, I then kind of just go, okay, I'm going to fill this out a little bit. I think about the practical implication of it. And then I pray and I ask God to solidify that within my heart. And then I take a minute and I try to be silent again. You don't have to spend a ton of time. And if you can, and, and as I've, you know, over the years... There's been seasons where I spend more time in meditation and less time. Medita- meditation on Scripture is not the worldly meditation, which worldly meditation is getting everything out of your brain entirely and trying to think of nothing. That's not what Christian meditation is. That's not necessarily always healthy. Christian meditation is taking the Word of God and only allowing that to be what is resonating within your head. And so that's kind of what my my meditation is and I know some people have different is yours pretty similar to that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think as kind of as a conclusion to that.
1: If I feel like I
0: get anything, I'll write it down. Write it down. Yeah. So that yeah. way you can come back and reference it and see if it was if it was on Yeah. Or... That's good. And and honestly even yeah, and and right. Yeah. And and thinking of and then going and looking within the context of the scripture too. Making sure that what you feel like the Holy Spirit told you about that verse still lines up within Scripture. Because if it doesn't line up with Scripture, it wasn't the Holy Spirit talking to you. If that makes sense. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Okay. There's a lot of different ways to memorize verses. Um, each person has their own tricks. Um, sometimes repetition. Um, so... For me, when I want to memorize a new piece of, of scripture, I am a very visual, uh, learner. I, I like to just read something. And so, um, so I have this trick. So if I ever come up with a nickname for you, so this is not scriptural. This is just me. If I ever, if I ever have a nickname for you that I want to stick, what I do is I change your name in my phone and all of my contacts everywhere that it will allow me to change your name, I change it to that nickname. So every time I go to text you, I have to remember that nickname in order to come up with it. And so repetition, forcing myself a repetition in order to re- remember that nickname. So because that's how I learn in the non-biblical, that's how I learn with the biblical. So I write it down. I send myself text messages. I put alarms that have just that scripture. And so in order to, to delete the alarm, I go through, okay, I'm going to read it one more time. And so repetition for me, repetition and reading, that is what helps me. Um, Some people like to put scripture to a song and sing the melody. So it's like, take your favorite song and instead replace it with a scriptural verse that sometimes can become a good way to memorize stuff. There's also the, there's memory palace memorization techniques. That's a lot more complicated. We're not going to get into that because that's like, if you want to memorize a whole book of the Bible um, at memory palace stuff, that's how the world memory uh, champions remember stuff. But that's not a single verse. That's like if you want to remember a whole book of the Bible. But um, so how do you remember stuff for school? You you don't memorize anything for school? So like when you're getting ready to memorize something for a test and something really important you know you need to remember, how do you make it so that you can remember it? Or you just wing it and hope you get an A? You just wing
1: everything.
0: I'm gonna give you advice. Start memorizing stuff. It'll help you uh, in school. Um, but no um, <laughs> flashcards. Um, you know, you can write Matthew 13:16. I don't know what that is, but you can write Matthew 13:16, and then on the back, write the verse down. And then you can every once in a while just with, you can set it up like on your bathroom counter and set it so that it says, Matthew 13, 16. And so then you have to try to remember what it says before you can look at the back of it and then confirm what it says. And so every time you come across that postcard, um, you try to memorize, you try to say it out loud. That's a good way to memorize stuff really easily. And it doesn't take you, you don't have to sit down and spend an hour memorizing. Most people, if you want to put something in the long-term memory, don't cram to try to memorize it. Don't take an hour to try to memorize something. Try to remember it periodically throughout your day. Take 5 minutes, 10 seconds, 30 times out throughout the day and just try to go over it multiple times throughout your day. It doesn't take any additional time away from you. Like when you're just sitting watching TV, take 10 seconds, read through the scripture, try to remember it again. And try to vocalize it before you look at it. And that'll help you memorize scripture a, really easily. Sometimes what I used to do is put things on my mirror. Or my mm-hmm. door frame, every time I walk out the door, you just say the verse every single time. And you go out that door 20 times a day, you say that verse 20 times. Yeah. And the next time, eventually, you can take it down
2: and say it when you walk out without even... Go for it. I was going to say, the the way that I try to memorize stuff for school or anything is to, in a, sh- in a short sense, associate it with something that I do know. Hmm. I do that a lot with names uh, with and dates. Yeah. Like... Especially like understand the meaning of it. <clears throat> with people's names, I often remember them by trying to figure out what the name means.
0: Yeah, that's like, good.
2: Like for like for uh, for T- for Tanner Sherlock, I know that uh, Tanner is uh, originally a surname that was the occupation of someone who tanned hides, and Sherlock is a place in England.
0: It's also a place in Ireland. <clears throat> but yes, um, no, that's good too. That's And really what it comes down to is memorizing Scripture has got to be something that you find that works for you. Um, but I will say that's an excellent point, and I think it, it is very, very important to have Scripture memorized. So um, if you guys are in here and you can't rattle off a little bit of Scripture off the top of your head. Um, even just look up some inspirational, some some uh, verses that might you need might need when you need courage. Just Google that and look at some of those verses. Look at the context. Make sure it's saying what it's supposed to say. And then take some time and memorize it over the next few weeks, the next month. Um, it is important for us to have Scripture memorized. Jesus memorized Scripture and He taught um that it is important it is, and we do find it important to have Scripture memorized because you know, um, there's a lot of different scenarios, but what happens if you find yourself in a prison where you don't have access to a Bible, even just having some scripture memorized that you can just have, I think is so important because we aren't always given the the world that we live in today isn't guaranteed us for forever. Um, I think it's it is important. Another way, um, we have these uh, kids' books for him that uh, we went through. Um, was it Psalm 23? Yeah. So we went through Psalm 23 for our men's group last year. And I, for the life of me, could not memorize it no matter how hard I tried. We bought him a kid's book that goes through Psalms 23 in kind of a fun, colorful, learning way. And by goodness, I have, this, I have Psalms 23 memorized because of a kid's book. Because I read it to him constantly. It's it's my favorite book to read to him probably at, at night before he goes to bed. And so I read it to him way more frequently than I would care to read Psalm 23 normally. But I love it and it's helped me to memorize it. And, so, um, f- and all it does is it associates colors with the verses. And so it's like, though I walk through the valley of the shallow, shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. It's black. And then it's like, um, my cupeth overflows is black. Cup-th. My, <laughs> My cuppeth, sorry, that's the King James <laughs> version. Red. Uh, yeah, red, yeah, it's a cup. And so it's kind of cool because it associates colors with the different things. So when you're going through it, all I got to do is think of, okay, what was green? What was black? What was red? What was purple? And so it helps you to remember it easier. And so sometimes association, um, memorization. So psych- psychologically, memorization, it's easier to memorize stuff if you can associate it with something else. So that's where adding lyrics to a song helps, that's where coming up with colors. Um, memorization, how much easier it is it to memorize somebody's name if you know somebody else with that name that kind of looks like them? Well, you can associate that other person. It's like, oh yeah, he looks like Frank. So, oh yeah, his name's Frank. So the association, it's 10 times easier for us to memorize things through association. And so finding a way to associate the scripture with something else is, is a good way too. But. All right, let's pray. Uh, Lord. Um, I know that this session can be boring at times. It can feel hard to grasp. It can be frustrating, confusing. Um, Lord, I know that that there can be some negative thought processes with this. But Lord, I just pray that as, as we go from here and these guys begin to look at Scripture and begin to try to perform exegesis, and try to read their Bibles the right way. Lord, that it wouldn't be confusing, that it would be clear, that it would be easy to understand, and Lord, that it would be easy for them to grasp the concepts of hermeneutics. Um, Lord, as we go out, this is such an important topic because it is so important for us as we read the Bible to do it the right way so that we actually get your word out of it and not something that we are trying to put into it. And so lord as these guys go from here i just pray understanding and clarity um, in the the basic concepts of how to read their bible the right way lord i pray that um, you would strengthen these guys and encourage them in their scripture reading to to go through soap to to observe apply and pray um, as they read scripture i pray that you that these tools would just be tools that would help them to get closer to you more than anything. Because really what's the most important is our understanding of you and our um, desire to, to be closer to you and us seeking you out. And so, Lord, I pray that this would just help these guys to get closer to you this week. Lord, I pray for abundant time and abundant energy to get their classwork done. Um, I pray for good grades as well as energy to go to class and to study the right way. Lord, we thank you and we love you and we give everything over to you for your will to be done in our lives. And it's in your name we pray.